Hello and welcome to the Unnamed Automotive Podcast. My name is Sammy Hadjassad, and with me, as always, is my good friend and fellow automotive journalist, Benjamin Hunting. Say hi to the people, Ben. Greetings, human listeners. Greetings to everyone. Now, if this is the first time you've ever heard our podcast, usually I ask Ben to plug a bunch of the publications that he's working for, working on. But this time, we're going to change it up. I'm going to ask him to talk about a project that he's been working very hard on. Ben, take it away. So I have written my first graphic novel, and we are currently launching it on Kickstarter on March 2nd, which is just a few days after this podcast go live. Um, it's The Kickstarter launches at 8 a.m., and the story of the graphic novel is about a woman named Vanessa who works as a metro driver. And as she's driving trains under the streets of Montreal, she hears rumors that there are dragons that live in the tunnels, for, and they stalk everyone who works on the night shift. And the people who work on the night shift, they're so terrified about going to work that they start self-medicating. And there's a certain point where they can no longer tell what's real and what's not. And Vanessa is drawn into this world alongside the world of underground raves, thanks to her DJ roommate. Eventually, she's forced to confront her perception of reality, figure out what's going on in her own life, and decide how it ties into a dark secret about her own family's past. So if the book is going to be released by Scout Comics at the end of this year, but if you want to get in on it early and help us fund the art for the rest of the issues, the rest of the five issues... You can go to www.code-45.com, and like I said, on March 3rd, the Kickstarter goes live, but if you go there now, you can click to be reminded of when it goes live, and you'll get an email directly from Kickstarter. So uh, I know Sammy and I don't ask you for much on this podcast, but it would be great if you could support um, me, and by extension us, by supporting the graphic novel that that I've actually, it's been two years we've been working on this. Very cool. That was actually a really good uh, elevator pitch. I hope you weren't rushing too much through it, were you? I'm just scared if I do it wrong, you're going to be so mad at me again. <laughs> yeah, I I get pretty furious about that kind of stuff. Okay, now that you plugged the cool the cool graphic novel, tell me where people can find um, all of the other work that you've been working on. You can find my work at Motor Trend, at Automobile Magazine, at Driving Line, and Haggerty Classic Car. Very cool. And you can find all of my work at autotrader.ca as well as Nouveau Magazine and Motor Illustrated. Motor Illustrated. Oh, no, I can't do it. Motorillustrated.com. Yes. So this week, Ben, we're going to talk about um, a car that both of us drove out in Las Vegas, Nevada. That, of course, is the mid-engined Chevrolet Corvette, also known as the C8. It's not just a car that we drove. We drove it together, and it's a car that people have been asking about and curious about for a very, very, very long time because Chevrolet's hype machine was in full force for this vehicle. But more than that, the C8 is a dramatic reimagining of a car that's been really important to Chevrolet for about 60 years. Um, yeah, actually, one of the most one of the original Corvette engineers known as Zora uh, Arcos Duntov um, has been a person who has always wanted to make a mid-engine sports car way back, what, in the 60s or 70s? Or well, he did, he did want to. I mean, RIP, he's been dead for a while, but uh, go on. Yes. Uh, and this is finally Chevrolet um, answering the call and developing a mid-engine sports car. Um, the, the, the Corvette, of course. And why that's their, their halo vehicle, right? Yes, so what can where can we start talking about this car? We we found it, we looked at it, we said we're going to take this beautiful blue one out for a drive outside of Las Vegas, and the moment we started driving it up and down the strip, 
Um, we it got started, a lot of attention. Right? It also started to rain, which Sammy was pretty upset because I insisted that we remove the target top right away because who drives with the target top on, right? And it fits right in the trunk, uh, but it was raining, like, and we're sitting at a stoplight and Sammy's getting wet. And he must have told me he was getting wet maybe 20, 25 times in the space of half an hour. And then the rain stopped, and then I think he, he felt a little better. But he eventually made me put the target roof on because it was, quote-unquote, too loud inside the car. So I'll let you, I'll let the audience decide whether that's a valid excuse for putting the top up. Well, I mean, I like to have a good conversation with my friend Ben while, while we're driving this um, hyped-up sports car, right? But, but you're not wrong. Um, this car attracted more attention than any vehicle I've been in for the last year. People at every stoplight, and even sometimes when we were rolling, they had cameras mm-hmm. out, they were filming, they were taking photos, they were asking us where we got the car. We had people stop their trucks and turn around and come mm-hmm. back and talk to us while we were taking photos, way out in the middle of nowhere in the desert. Um, <laughs> yeah, they would, they, would, they would drive by, they would be like, whoa, and then they'd pass us, and they'd come back, and they'd go, whoa, again, and I'd like motion for them, like, you want to come and take a closer look instead of stopping on the road? And they're like, yes. And they would come over. It was fun. But we made, uh, fr- we made friends. The reason this really surprised me is because this was happening, you know, not just out in the desert, but while we were in Vegas itself on Las Vegas Boulevard. Mm-hmm. And that's a part of the world where supercars are really common. And you see, we, we saw McLarens, Ferraris, Lamborghinis. Mm-hmm. It was not at all difficult to find a supercar. All you had to do was wait maybe 30 seconds and one would drive by. And I know that sounds like an exaggeration, but it's not because there's so many companies out there renting them. Uh, so the the people who are in Vegas are accustomed to seeing this, and yet yeah. the Corvette really stood out, and it was something that everybody wanted to get a piece of. Absolutely. So what are they going to be getting a piece of if someone was to make the purchase and get a C8? Well, they're getting a mid-engine vehicle, one with a Targa roof that, as Ben mentioned before, and it was insistent in experiencing. You put We took the roof off, we put it in the trunk, um, and then having never seen the roof, he asked me to put it back on, and then that was a very interesting video. If you if you've seen Ben's Instagram uh, stories, I don't know what I didn't know what I was doing, but I but he did it so it well. Story of his life, really. <laughs> so uh, that engine that has been moved to the middle of the car is a 6.2 liter V8. It makes 490 horsepower and 465 pound feet of torque, which gets bumped up by five digits. No, sorry, five points. When you get the Z51 package of the car, also known as the track package. The other important thing to note about the Corvette is it now gets a 8-speed dual-clutch transmission. Um, this is pretty. This is a pretty big deal because um, I thought that the old 8-speed automatic was pretty good. And for them to change it up and put a dual-clutch transmission, usually these things are a little bit heavier and, and complex. It's, it's not the only reason why that's a big deal, Sammy. The other factor is you can no longer get a manual. Right. That's a huge deal for um, enthusiasts. For but almost way, So 20% of Corvettes were sold with a manual transmission. Now 0% of them will 0.0%. Um, either way, you get a car that manages to hit highway speeds in three seconds and reach like a top speed of just under 200 miles per hour. I think it's 194. 2.9 seconds um, with the Z- Z51 package. Mm-hmm. And that's because it has a, uh, a launch control function, um, which is actually really easy to use. Ben, do you remember using the launch control function? Yeah, you, you put your foot on the brake, you rev it, it goes to, I want to say 4600, but I'm not sure if that's correct. Mm-hmm. And then you, you just let go of the brake and it does the rest. But there's the, this is where I think we need to start throwing in our opinions to go alongside these facts. Oh, okay. So just talking about how acceleration is great, that's true off the line. Yes. Once you're moving, though, 
the Corvette is not nearly as impressive as it looks like it should be. And this is where Sammy and I are disappointed with the car. Um, there's so many promises being made by this car's bodywork. I think it looks pretty fantastic. Uh, I know, Sammy, there's a couple of angles where you're not too sure about it. Yeah. But it, it, in general, it is an eye-catching car. And it definitely looks like an exotic because the mid-engine placement has elongated the rear trunks of the vehicle. The hood is a lot shorter than what you would see on a traditional Corvette. So when you look at it, you're like, okay, this thing is super fast. When you're doing 60, 75 miles an hour and you mash the gas, it accelerates, but it does not throw your head back. It is, and, it is not the kind of car where you're like, wow, this is really quick. And I think there's a bunch of reasons for that, Sammy. Yeah, I think there are a bunch of reasons for that as well. And I think it has a lot to do with, first of all, I think power output is not as significant as we thought it might be. Um, I don't want to be rude, but I think uh, sports cars under 500 horsepowers are feeling a little less special than they used to, um, especially in a world full of 707 horsepower family sedans. It's insane. Yeah. And, so, and, you know, it, it's weird, too, because the C7, I believe, whew, I, off the top of my head, 430, 460 was, I think, the maximum for the, the naturally aspirated car. Mm-hmm. And that's only 35 less than this car, but it felt quicker on the highway. It yeah. felt like it felt more more engaging, more raucous, and more just kind of like a live wire in a mm-hmm. way that the C8 doesn't. And uh, another part of, I think... What uh, to, to kind of continue what Sammy was saying, there's two other aspects that are keeping the car from feeling as exciting as it might be once it's at speed. The weight of the car is 200 pounds heavier than the C7 in similar trim. So yeah. uh, I know Road and Track weighed one of these at around 3,650 pounds in, mm-hmm. in Z51 uh, edition, which is 195 more than a C7 in Z51. That's a fair amount of weight to gain. That is a fair amount of That actually really is important. And it actually underlines just how um, pretty light the C7 was. Remember, a Z51 is the track special version of, or the track packaged, uh, uh, track package equipped version of the, of the car. And so it's got a lot of extra heavy duty equipment that can help it withstand multiple laps one after, one after another, right? Yeah. And uh, the, the a lot of the extra weight. I mean, it's going to be the transmission. And, and any way you slice it, a DCT is going to be heavier than a manual. Mm-hmm. So right away, that puts the Corvette at a disadvantage. The other issue I think that's keeping the Corvette from feeling fast at speed is gearing. I think they really. Uh-huh. I don't want to say cheated, but I think that they specifically made the first two gears much shorter in mm-hmm. order to hit that two point nine metric, and then the rest of it was leveled out for normal driving because the car drives very well. It just doesn't feel. It doesn't feel special, Sammy. It doesn't feel it. wild. I, I think. It. I think. I think it doesn't. I think you're right. It doesn't feel special. Um, it doesn't feel wild, and that's important to note when it went. It's it's now a mid-engine car, and there's a reason you go mid-engine. There's a reason that most of these exotics go mid-engine. Um, it's usually the uncompromised format of achieving a, tr- a high-performance vehicle. Now we both know that Chevrolet has reached the ultimate. Um, they well as far as they can go with the front engine rear wheel drive version of the Corvette, and I think we're both pretty big fans of some of the high performance versions of the C7. Um, I think you're a pretty big fan of the Z06, right? No, I, I'm a big fan of the Grand Sport. I think the, the Grand, Grand Sport, Sport is the best version of the car out there, um, just right. in terms of bang for the buck, and it's a lot of fun on a racetrack. Whereas the C8, it's a clinical car. Mm-hmm. It feels like it was designed 
to handle a lot more power than it has now. And as a result, the base model doesn't feel fun in the way a base model C7 did. And that's a big problem for me because the numbers are right for this car. If you're shopping numbers, you're going to be so happy for a a car that starts at $59,000 and can do 194 miles an hour. I mean, if you'd said that in 1995, it would be be insane. It is still quite impressive now. It is, but only if you're shopping numbers. If you're shopping experience, this car is not fun to drive. And I did not enjoy the dynamics of the vehicle, regardless of how competent it was. And that's something that was really disappointing to me. And there's there's a few things. I've already mentioned the acceleration not feeling like it's throwing your head back. Um, mm-hmm. That's one. Two, on a road course, we were at Spring Mountain, which is about an hour outside of Vegas. It's a, it's a track I really love. I've done the CTS, or I guess just V Academy there. I have done a few other product launches there. I've actually had some Chevrolet products on that track before. It's a great facility, great instructors. Mm-hmm. So on that track, the there's a few weird things. Not weird, but specifically designed into the C8 that detract from what I would call fun factor. The first is the weight balance, Sammy. It's 60 yeah. in the rear, 40 in the front. Yes. Uh, very different than what I think the C7 would have had too. If I'm used to it, C7 is a little bit more balanced than than this, right? Yeah, and so when you're braking, the weight of the car kind of informs the. If you're braking from a really high speed, yeah. the the weight of the car at the back kind of makes the. It feels a little squirrely. It shakes a little bit in the back. It, it moves around. It doesn't feel unstable, but it feels like it's on the edge of being unstable. And, and that, that really ruins the experience <laughs> when you're trying to track the car, right? Feel, like, well, you got to get used to it, and it's a little. You unusual. have to feel. You have like so many cars. So many, especially mid-engine cars and exotics, have the capability of feeling fast without without. And letting you feel like you're in control. And there's moments when, in the Corvette when you when you mash the brake and you're like, whoa, okay, uh, I'm not so sure about this. Am and, I wrong? And, and then when you, well, when you get to the – it depends too on where you're mashing the brake because a couple of the areas um, on that track, there's a, there were some hard right-hand corners and there's some multiple apex right-hand corners. So that means a corner mm-hmm. followed by another corner and it was an uphill to a downhill. And in order to achieve the best possible line through that corner, the way the C8 is set up, you have to use trail braking, which means you continue to brake through the corner instead of just doing it all in a straight line. And that puts more weight on the nose of the car because it's so light in the front, the 40%, that you have – in order to get the right amount of turn in, in order to have the car turn in uh, sharp enough so that you're balancing the amount of speed you need and you're not pushing too far to the outside, that braking is crucial. And – if there's one thing the C8 platform wants to do, it's push. This car is dialed in for understeer, even with the track alignment that we were running on the car. Yeah, that was a that was a very important thing to bring up. That the cars that we had were not exactly right out of the factory, and and that's it. They were aligned specifically for the track, which is very nice. And it's it's in the manual. I mean, the C7 yeah. had a track alignment for it too. It's it's not an unusual thing. And the other thing I wanted to mention is we had the Z51 package versions of the car. So they had the summer tire setup and um, some of them even had the magnetic ride control. And yet there were still moments when the car just did not feel as dialed in and as confidence inspiring as I was hoping it to be. And that's coming, uh, you know, we've driven some other cars that are both more expensive and less expensive than this car that have provided the confidence to make you feel like a like a star on the track well, and that you can you can goof around it or you can you can slice it up 
any way you want. Am I wrong? There's no goofing around in this car. This, no. this is a vehicle that has very specific boundaries within which if you drive, you'll be very fast. The moment you step outside of that, uh, the car doesn't want to play anymore. Um, the way the weight is balanced in the vehicle, if you, it's hard to get the rear end to step out. If you do, it's instantaneous in terms of catching it. All you have to do is very briefly flick the wheel and you're back in a straight line. So it's a very accessible car in terms of performance. But again, it's a curated speed experience. This is a car where you're going to go fast how they want you to go fast. And if that's good for you, you'll be happy with it. If it's not, you're going to be disappointed because you can't really step outside those lines. That's really interesting. I mean, we we talk a lot about how modern sports cars, especially reaching this uh, supercar level of performance, um, feel sterile. Uh, I think one of the most um, blatant cars that that have this issue is the Nissan GTR. Uh, We've both complained about that before in the past. And a lot of people have driven that car and put it on the track, and you just mash the throttle whenever you see it whenever you see fit to and the car sorts it out. But the GTR, the GTR feels so much faster than the C8. Yes. And that's one of the most important things to bring up here is like when you do hit that throttle, it immediately gears down just like that. It, it just hits you with a wave, with a wave of, of torque, especially, and you're set up, you're set. Right. And then I didn't feel that exact same feeling in the, in the Corvette at all. No, It really, it really feels like in order to truly access the fun factor in the C8, you're going to have to buy the Z06. You're going to have to get a car that has the chassis needs way more power in order for it to become playful. And you know, a couple of years ago, I went to the grand sport launch at Atlanta motorsports park. And I spent a day driving the C7 grand sport there automatic and manual. Both of them were a blast. I could have done lap after lap after lap. Uh, just chasing my own time, chasing the edges of that car. With the C8, I honestly did not have that feeling. I didn't have a feeling where I was like, oh, I really need to get back out there and see how much more is left. I didn't really feel like there was any more left. And if there was, I wasn't curious about finding it. And that's... A sports car needs to make me feel something. I need to have some type of attachment. So I think there's two ways to approach a sports car. The emotional approach which is what i was just mentioning or the numbers approach that we were talking about earlier on in the in the episode and a lot if you're really successful you can combine both of those in a sports car but for me if it's one or the other it needs to be emotional okay there's another there's another aspect to talk about here we've discussed what it we've just discussed what it's like on the track we've also need to discuss what it's like um on the road which is which is kind of um it's okay um, I don't have <laughs> kind a of lot of okay. <laughs> I, I don't have a lot of love for the fact that it comes out of the factory with all season tires. I don't think that's appropriate for um, a sports car of this of this um, layout, especially. And uh, I was expecting something with a little bit more, like I said, a little bit more excitement for the driver there. But we should also talk about the accompaniment of of just the the cabin is insane. It's not exactly my favorite place to sit in. Um, it's clearly dialed in to accommodate the driver, but even then, I don't think the driver will enjoy it. You know what no, I mean? It's, so uh, if anyone hasn't seen the interior of the C8, there is a great big wall separating the driver and the passenger uh, where the center console is. And I know it sounds like we're exaggerating, but trust not. me, it's, it, if you're on the driver's side, it's not as uh, it's not as much of a problem because – 
all the controls are canted towards you and the wall is somewhat farther away. But if you're on the passenger side, you're right at the edge of that wall and you feel claustrophobic. Not only that, the top of the wall has all of the HVAC controls. So there's like legit 17 buttons on top it's of that. It's insane how many buttons are on this. It's thing. like Porsche level buttons. But on, on this entire, this tiny strip, it's like this ridge of a, of a cliff. It's insane. So if so, you want, if you want to reach over that ridge, Sammy, and get to the infotainment screen, you're probably going to accidentally change the climate settings, right? So, which you did num- a number of times when you were trying to turn <laughs> up the the volume for whatever you we were listening to, and you turned on the like my heated seats, you turned on the window defog. It was insane. I was like, "What's happening to the car right now?" And you're like, "Oh, my bad, that's me." Um, another thing is the the controls. I mean, are they? <sighs> There's a couple that feel a little cheap and not really pleasant to feel or touch. Specifically, like, really important things like the paddle shifters, I didn't think felt particularly impressive. Yeah, we were in pre-production cars, so I'm willing to cut the paddle shifters a little slack. But if you look at the Z51 cars we had on the track, mm-hmm. those were actual serial number cars that were going to be delivered. And they had nicer metallic paddle shifters versus right. the small plastic ones we had on the 3LT top spec car we drove on the street. And Chevrolet made a really big deal about discussing these paddle shifters to us and how they're directly wired to the transmission rather than being fed through a canvas. Did you notice any difference in the way that they would react or or behave? Honestly, I, like, I didn't. I didn't think it made any difference. Well, like you, um, I was happy with the eight-speed slush box in the C7. I thought that was a pretty decent <laughs> transmission. And I noticed. I feel like it, now I feel like an idiot. Right? There's like, engineers out there who are like. These people are idiots. <laughs> but uh, I, I, it's intended to save a few fractions of a millisecond, and I'm sure it does. And they were they were modeling it after Porsche's PDK, which doesn't rely on a bus system to transmit directions directly to the transmission. Again, I'm going to be honest. On the track, I just let the transmission shift itself because I wasn't there to shift. I was there to kind of get a feel for what the car was like. And when you're going at those speeds, trying to figure out when you need to shift and when you don't, it can be really distracting. So the first you know, couple of laps when I'm on a racetrack, I'm really focused on the car and getting a feel for the rhythm of the track I'm on. Um, right. Also, this is also maybe controversial. I don't really have any fun shifting gears myself with paddle shifters. I don't really find it engaging. And if the computer can do it better than me, why am I even bothering? You know, if a clutch and a manual gearbox is something totally different. And I don't really feel like paddle shifters replicate that experience. Okay. I don't always agree with that. I do sometimes like to take control and see and, and either hold a gear or not. Um, sometimes tran- like modern automatic transmissions just jump into the highest gear and then uh, – or or – dump it in a weird way too so it's annoying yeah but on a racetrack in in a sports car that's programmed for it that that should not happen true um there are some other things that we should talk about with the interior of the vehicle visibility specifically the um like the blind spots if you want to discuss those it's not exactly easy to see out of and most mid-engine cars that's the case i suppose but this one just felt difficult to to deal with. Yeah, you got some big pillars in the on either side, and it's tough when you're backing up. Uh, also, the you can't really see out the back that well because that's where the engine is, and there's an like engine cover and all that stuff in the trunk lid. But to, uh, to no, but to address the rearward visibility, Chevrolet put their rear view mirror camera in there, and we found out that in sunlight when we had the target top up off. We couldn't see anything anyway. Yeah, it washed out the mirror. But, you know, the more I think about that, Sammy, we should have just turned the mirror to face us directly because the angle doesn't matter, right? Yeah. So you could have, in th- we could have, in theory, gotten it out of the sun, maybe. 
Oh, I guess so. You're right. <laughs> <laughs> but then there was that other weird angle that we could – there was all sorts of cameras all over this car. So it's meant to make it a little bit easier to park and stuff. Um, and there's all these de- weird angles to see how close you are to the curb. There's also a uh, the performance data recorder. Um, they made a really big deal of showing this uh, off to us. But one of the more important features about it is that it can be used as a built-in dash cam, which is kind of cool so that it can be activated with like motion – um, with a motion detection system or something like that. And it's also 1080p now, which is nice because I know the earlier ones, uh, they're a little dark, mm-hmm. uh, especially if you're in like a high contrast lighting situation, they tend to go dark. So that it was nice to see the quality. So there are some, I mean, it's jumped up. The whole car has jumped a, a certain level, but I feel like you're, you're one, you hit it on the head. This car was made for the next iteration of, or the next set of trim levels, right? It's made for the track special or the high-performance models that will truly scare what the exotics um, are currently offering. And I think it's tough to say because I won't, I won't lie. I was very excited when I saw it going mid-engine because and, and the starting price of $60,000 is insane. But I, a piece of me really thought this would, this would really take it to um, not just the 911 but something even beyond the 911 like a Turbo or uh, a Huracan or an R8, which are I guess the same car. But I really wanted to like the car too, you know. I and never got there. I never really felt that. I mean, if the mission was to create a completely different car from the C7, then mission accomplished. This is a yeah. very, yeah. very different vehicle, and I think it's going to appeal to a lot of people who are going to want to drive it on a daily basis. They're going to have fun. It's going to. I mean, they're going to. I'm not going to have fun driving it, but people. I think a lot of other people are going to enjoy the looks. They'll enjoy how comfortable it is. They'll enjoy the price, and they'll enjoy how much you know the sound and the the quick off the line aspects of it. People who aren't going to be taken to a racetrack or maybe just you know. I don't want to say typical Corvette owner, but I would like – I do think that the majority of Corvette owners are not necessarily interested in drag racing or road course racing. I think that's a small – as with all aspects of performance driving, I think that's a small percentage. So I think Chevrolet will have no issue selling these. I'm just personally disappointed because I feel like the car could have been so, so much more in terms of engagement. I want, to, I want to ask you if that's been happening far too often to you, if, if we've just have yet to – um, acclimatize ourselves to the modern sports car. Is that just the case? I'm not going to ever acclimatize myself to it. I don't pretend that my personal taste is what the market wants. And mm-hmm. when I write for uh, my clients or even on this podcast, um, I, I realize that you know I'm not reviewing the car for me to buy it. I'm not the target market for the C8, although in a way I am because I am a sports car owner. I am someone who, who tracks regularly. Um, but I, I'm always aware of the audience that I'm, I'm writing for or speaking to. Mm-hmm. But on the podcast, I think I'm able to be a little more unvarnished and just let my personal opinions come through more clearly. Okay. And so- uh, I I mean, I'm going to be honest, the majority of new cars are not fun to drive. And we've talked about this in the past about how, again, I've used the word curated on this episode, but mm-hmm. a lot of it's designed to make you go fast with as little driver involvement as possible in as safe, as safe a way as possible. And that's just kind of... I would prefer a more stripped down experience in a car that connects me to what's actually happening. And we're never going to get there. That's done. And I realize that. Uh, So in comparison to other cars is kind of how I look at vehicles now. So when we look at the C8, I have to compare it to the C7 because it did a pretty good job at all of those things, regardless of its imperfections. Right. Okay. So then let's talk about now that the C7 is no longer, you can't, I mean, I guess you can still buy a couple of C7s, but... Other mid-engine cars that have hit the mark, I will say, um, are not as powerful, are still fun to drive. You would say the the 
Cayenne and uh, sorry, the Cayman and the Boxster, as well as the Four C, which are bonkers silly cars to to enjoy. Yes. Um, and then there's, um, but the none of those of, none of those cars are nearly as fast as this car. No, um, which I would is, say that they came in the uh, the problem is that came in a very a very fast came in is very expensive as well. Yeah, so like a GT4 maybe, but it's it, even then or I don't GTS think it, or whatever. I don't it's think called. a GTS Sorry. is doing 194 miles an hour. Okay, you know, like it's it's not it's a different class of car. Okay, which is probably what makes them feel more inter- more engaging. Hmm. I mean, those ones always those ones feel lighter and um, and um, more engaging. They feel like they're not that curated. They're not entirely that curated experience that you. Well, were. they also offer manual transmissions, except for the Alpha, which is actually a manual transmission in disguise. <laughs> yes, but then there are some other cars that are. Um, I guess they're considered more affordable, like supercars or something like that. Uh, 911 turbos, I guess, would be around there. Or 911, yeah, 911 turbo, I would say. Um, the R8, for example, the Huracan. How do you feel? Uh, and the NSX. How do you feel when it comes to those ones? I think the NSX is uh, the definition of an unengaging, boring video game experience. In comparison to the Corvette, what do you think? I think it's terrible. <laughs> it's worse than the Corvette. Oh yeah, by far. Okay. The NSX is a car that I never need to drive again. <laughs> okay. I'm going to be 100% honest. There's, there is nothing there. It okay. is very, very fast, and it leaves me completely cold. Okay, okay. And, uh, and, and you've driven an R8 in the past year, I think, too. Yeah, but I think the R8 is a different experience. The R8 is a luxury Grand Touring Coupe. I don't think that's, uh-huh. I don't think that's what the C8 is about. Um, and the same for the Huracan. I mean, unless you get to, again, a more track-focused version of the Huracan. Mm-hmm. Uh, both of those cars, though, feel way quicker than the C8. Yep. Like I they, mean, a V10, too, right? Like, they feel it. You know, I'm not saying they are. I'm not saying we're going to put them side by side and do a drag race. I'm just talking about the experience. Absolutely. I mean, I'm pretty sure the R8 has like 100 more horsepower on this thing. Okay, fine. Maybe not that well, much. They make a V8 can... version of the R8 as well. So, Is that still available? I don't know. Okay. So let's uh, transition from our Corvette discussion and talk about another sporty car. You've been driving the Subaru WRX, is that right? Yeah, the 2020 WRX. This is a car that's been around for a while. I don't think it's been around as long as we think it has been, but it feels ancient. It feels old. Am I wrong? This I don't, is the car. I don't, I don't think it feels ancient. But oh, it does I feel think it's little, ready to be replaced. <laughs> it does feel a little older. It feels long in the tooth. Let's get to the basics of this. This is a two-liter Boxer engine. It's turbocharged to what? Two hundred and sixty-eight. Two sixty-eight and two hundred fifty-eight pound-feet of torque. And I had the manual version with the six-six-speed. Uh, you mm-hmm. can also get a CVT because I mean everything from Subaru is available with a CVT these days. <laughs> uh, it does zero to sixty in five and a half seconds, so that's uh, two and a half seconds slower than the Corvette. Okay. So I guess sad trombone. <laughs> yeah. But uh, it costs a little less. It's about twenty-seven grand. The version that I had. Or sorry, uh, the base version is twenty seven grand. I was driving, I think the limited. Um, I, it was a it was a Canadian trim, so it might have been a, a little bit different, but a mix between the premium and the limited. So you get you know a heated driver's seat and LED headlights that you know they're they're responsive in terms of they move with the steering wheel, uh, navigation and a moonroof and all that stuff. So it's kind of like the comfortable version of the WRX. Okay, and it's it's in a class of car that. It stands out as well because the WRX is special in comparison to other hot hot compacts or, or sporty compacts by the fact that it has all-wheel drive and almost none of them uh, – none, none of the ones do. No well, it's also because it's a sedan. 
And right. There's not a lot of sedans out there. I mean, every pretty much all the hot turbo cars are hatchbacks. With the exception of, I guess, the Elantra Sport, which is a 200-ish horsepower sedan. But I don't think they're comparable performance-wise. I think the Elantra Sport is a lot of fun, mm-hmm. but I would not put it – I mean, you wouldn't put it on a racetrack with a WRX and expect similar performance. Well, I think that's where the WRX – it does have a lot of power in comparison. A good, like, 50 horsepower over, say, the GTI or the uh, Civic uh, SI or the Elantra Sport, but it's also a heavier vehicle as well. Somewhat heavier, but the all-wheel drive really helps. I mean, a front-wheel drive car on a racetrack, you have to manage it, and you have to do less of that with the WRX, so right. uh, I think it's a little easier to drive. Now, the things that I think always stand out in the WRX is um, the interior and the transmission are usually the two things that stand out the most about the WRX that I do not like, but I do like the engine. Um, the st- the styling definitely um, is I'm okay with, and... I guess that goes about it. And it's a pretty decent price. Yeah, it's a decent price for what you're getting. The power is good. It doesn't blow you away. But if you want it to blow you away, then it's you're a cob tune away from having that happen. So there's a huge aftermarket for this car. You oh, know, yeah. It's, it's really – you should look at a WRX. As a, there's just two ways to look at it. It could either be a starting point for a really sick build or it could be a comfortable – reasonably comfortable daily driver that's not going to bore you to death. I mean it, okay. it's not a luxury car. But it's not it's not a penalty box. You're not bouncing around. Um, uh, you're not uh, complaining every time you hit a bump. And I had it during a we, – we've been having nothing but snowstorms in Montreal for the last month. And I, it sounds like I'm exaggerating, but we get 12-inch snowfalls once a week now for the last month. And it's a, it's starting to get a little tedious. <laughs> but I had the WRX during one of these, and it was it was fine to drive. I mean I, li- I really like the mechanical all-wheel drive system you get with the manual transmission. It's different from Subaru's other all-wheel drive systems that are on the CBT cars. Uh, and it's just fun. I never worried about getting stuck. I never worried about it stepping out of line in an unusual way. It's a very controlled car. And I, like Sammy said, I think it looks decent. But the interior is aging. The infotainment is aging. And the transmission does not shift as smoothly as I would like it. Yeah, this is this manual transmission, I think, is starting to feel really clunky. Which is a shame because we sh- are we really going to complain about one of the few manual transmissions left on the market? <laughs> I'm not going to complain about it, but uh, if you if you're shifting quickly, you'll notice the transmission. Mm. And um, I, I kept I, also I'm an idiot. I kept trying to shift into a reverse gear that didn't exist, the the one that's over <laughs> and above first gear. I don't know yeah. why it's actually you know it's over and far to the right of sixth gear. But I, it, I, I, my brain could not wrap itself around that in this car. That, that's completely on me. I have that actually all the time because in the FRS the the reverse gear is there. It's next to the fir- it's next to first gear, and then in my Outback it's next to sixth gear. So they're in the complete opposite directions. And whenever you jump into the other car, I'm like, uh, where's reverse again? Uh, and I know exactly what you mean. But you know, uh, if you live in a winter climate and you want a year-round car that's going to be fun, and you want it to be cheaper than a Golf R, um, I think that the WRX is still compelling if you can get a deal. I think that it's going to be replaced within the next two years. So if you want to wait and see how much more refined the car gets, I know the the Legacy and the Outback and the Forester have all received much nicer interiors over the last three or four years. So it might be worth waiting to see if the WRX gets a similar treatment. Um, but uh, it's not going to disappoint you. It just It's not as thrilling as it was five, four or five years ago when it came out. I'm really nervous about the next generation of WRX and STI. There are some rumors that we are supposed to see a new... Um, uh, STI very soon, and some people are suggesting that it's going to get a the 2.4 liter 
turbocharged boxer out of the ascent which sounds great because apparently it can get tuned up to 400 horsepower the bad news is will that mean that the manual transmission is gone i don't think so i think we're gonna see a manual sti no matter what whether we see a manual wrx is another question okay that's important is that a willing is that a worthwhile trade-off i mean if subaru goes all um premium and has a much more beautiful interior um is that a worthwhile trade-off? Is I that what they're going to sell it as? No, I think you need to have a manual transmission in this segment because every one of your competitors does. Mm-hmm. And I think if you stray away from that, you might lose buyers to um, everyone else. <laughs> We've also actually seen um, this past week photos of the new Volkswagen GTI, which is, I mean, the exterior design is pretty conservative, but the interior design looks much more premium than before. Pretty, pretty good. And if Subaru really wants to take them, be taken seriously, they've got to have something that can compete in that regard as well. It's true, but dynamically, I think the GTI is behind the WRX. Uh, I think that the WRX is still a more focused car. The GTI, as we've talked about on past episodes, it's really it's really become disappointing when you compare it to other front-wheel drive cars like the Veloster N or, um, or even the Veloster Turbo. It's just not as... The, the, the wow. GTI does not compare well to the Golf R anymore. And I used right. to think it did. I really used to think that, like, you know what? If you spend the money and uh, you you do it wisely and you don't go overboard on options, then you can have a GTA that's probably as fun with some aftermarket add-ons as a Golf R. But the way they priced the previous generation GTI, it kind of became impossible to do that. <laughs> so it, it was just so close to the Golf R in terms of price, and the experience was very different. Anything else you want to add about the WRX? I, you know, it, it kind of felt like driving an old friend. I mean, the car is so familiar at this point. I've owned a couple of WRXs in the past. It's a design that I've always been a fan of. I love that Subaru still builds this car. I love that they keep it relevant on the market. And I, like you were mentioning earlier, I'm not going to get mad about a manual turbo all-wheel drive car. Even yeah. if the, just because the transmission is getting a little clunky. You know, I, thank, <laughs> thank you for building this. Thank you for keeping it out there. And uh, five years from now, when cars like this no longer exist, we'll be talking about them fondly. Yeah, that's true. That's a great point. I think you're going to be well, and that's the other thing. They have interesting resale value too. Sometimes they they're really low, and sometimes they're very high. And you can usually see, you can usually tell why because some people end up having too much fun in the snow with their all wheel drive manual um, sedan, turbocharged sedan. Some people can't blame them, right? I'm not playing this game. Oh, okay. Let's discuss what we're going to be driving next week, and then we can tell everyone how they can get um, a hold of um, us and our next episodes. Right, Ben? Okay, well, next week I'm going to be talking about the 2020 Subaru Legacy, which is kind of interesting because I just drove the Outback a couple of weeks ago, and I expected the Legacy to be very similar, and it's not, Sammy. Aha! I'm looking forward to that. Next week I'll be talking about the Volkswagen Atlas Cross Sport. Ooh. Um, which I drove, uh, which I drove recently, and this is something we need to talk about. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> so um, I really encourage you guys, if you haven't yet, to subscribe to our uh, podcast. You can do that by going unnamed to unnamedautomotivepodcast.com. dot uh, com. While you're there, you'll see a bunch of buttons on the top of the site that allow you to subscribe to the podcast using, using your favorite client. And additionally, you'll see links to all of our previous episodes. If this is the first one you've ever listened to, or if you want to go back to the first time we talked about the WRX um, 10 decades ago, then that would be the place to do it. 
Um, and if, if, if you want to get a hold of us and yeah. ask us questions about anything we talked about today or just in general about cars or maybe a really deeply personal question about Sammy, you can get a hold of us. There's a contact form on unnamedautomotivepodcast.com that goes right to our inboxes. You can also find us on social media. Sammy prefers the cesspool that is Twitter. You can find him at Sammy underscore ha, like you're laughing. Uh, I prefer Instagram because people are just generally friendlier. You can find me there at Hunting Benjamin. Uh, and we are always happy to, to read your questions questions or just say hi right um and one last thing before we sign off please do head to uh the website code-45.com take a look at the graphic novel and um you should probably follow it and contribute to the kickstarter when it goes live march 3rd thanks guys talk to you next week bye